Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Everybody and welcome back to our third episode, I think it is, in our Polizioteschi season here at the Wild Wild Podcast. I am joined as ever by the uh, hugely talented and immensely prolific Rod. Hello, Rod. Hello, Adrian. I don't know about the talented part, but uh, yeah, I do seem <laughs> to be on more podcasts than I need to be on. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and you can't stop making your own either. It's like a, it's a compulsion. Oh, I know. It's ridiculous. I've got a couple in the can right now to release. It's it's insane. Yes, and you've done a couple of Italian films recently, and I've been so snowed under with everything I've been doing that I haven't quite got round to tweeting those out yet on the Wild Wild podcast feed, but I will. But I have seen that you did one on Beyond Darkness, or is it Beyond the Darkness? It's Beyond Darkness. Beyond uh, it's darkness. the uh, yeah. There's a there's a film called Beyond the Darkness, and there's uh, yeah. Beyond Darkness. They're very different films. Yes. One <laughs> so yeah, yours... one, one does not involve uh, uh, shall we say uh, sex with a dead body. So yeah. Yeah. Um, which, funnily enough, um, I wrote the um, the sleeve notes for that one for the Blu-ray. <laughs> in the uh, the UK release of that lovely film, so I'm I'm going to try and sneak it in somewhere in the podcast eventually. Oh my god! Um, so no, so yours is yours was the on the the film that's basically like Troll Three. Yeah, same people who made Troll Three, two. <laughs> made, or I'm sorry, Troll Two. You could <laughs> you could just call it Troll Three to a large degree yeah. because it's assembled from various pieces and parts of other films that you've already seen like oh i don't know poltergeist and everything else under the sun. and it's mostly shot where uh, fulci shot the beyond and uh, oh okay but with the same cast from utah that he 
No, no, no. Uh, well, the same kid, not, is it? The, the, the kid, the, the kid is the same. The kid actor yeah. who went on to make the documentary about yeah. um, Troll Two called Best Worst Movie. Uh, but no, not uh, <laughs> not the dentist. Not, yeah, yeah, not the dentist. Yeah. Like I say, there's a couple of actors that carry over from Troll Two, but not all of them. Yeah, I have got that. I've got again, like so many other things, I've got the Blu-ray, but I haven't watched it yet. So I'm looking forward to checking that out. I'm saving the podcast until I've actually watched the movie, in case you know there's any major spoilers. <laughs> <laughs> that's probably that's probably um, a good idea, just for enjoyment's yeah. sake. Yeah, not sure how much you can spoil a film like that. You also did one. I'm assuming it's because of the recent uh, 4K and Blu-ray release. You did an episode on Flesh for Frankenstein. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the uh, the release of the two uh, Paul Morrissey. Frankenstein and Dracula films uh, recently on Blu-ray over here have made it uh, have made, you know, made it easier than than it has been for a few years to actually see the things. Mm. And uh, my companion in crime, <laughs> Mark Maddox, uh, wanted to wanted to talk about them because he has an interesting history with both of them. As as do I actually. Now that I mm. now that I cast my mind back on the podcast itself but yeah he wanted to talk about flesh for frank so we're you know we're doing them in order flesh for frankenstein first and then in a month or two we'll do blood for dracula excellent and i mean what a world we live in you know what an age a golden age we live in when films like that get 4k and blu-ray releases films (laughs) that haven't been available in any kind of decent version for decades there are so many things that have come out and are continuing to be announced that I never assumed we would even see, you know, not just decent versions of, but my goodness, we're getting high definition, super special edition versions of these things. It's, I, I do occasionally just kind of shake my head and I'm stunned. I'm, I'm, don't get me wrong, very happy. But at the same time, wow, you know, the age we live in uh, is filled mm. with wonders and terrors, isn't it? Yeah. Where is it all going to end? Yeah. <laughs> um. <laughs> Yeah, do you have a 4K TV? The TV is 4K. Blu-ray? I have not bought a. Uh, I've not. I'm, I'm just. I just have Blu-ray players. I don't have yeah. a. I've not upgraded to uh, to, to the uh, the 4K players because, quite honestly, I'm. I, I can't. I can't. I can't think down that road. What's the point? Well, I mean, I thought that about Blu-ray, and then look where I ended up. So I've I've got a sneaking suspicion that I will eventually. I mean, I haven't got. 4k player or tv or anything yet but i feel like i should you know it's it's, ine- it's like it's just inevitable well i, <laughs> I mean it, crack it, eventually it may be i mean the i wasn't setting out to buy a 4k tv when i bought the television that i currently have it's just that we had moved and it was time to buy a new television and that was i got a you know i got a really good deal on the tv that i got and then i realized oh okay well it's it's 4k it says it every time i turn it on okay well that's yeah. nice, you know. <laughs> yeah. No, but it is good to be able to see these films uh, looking better than ever. Sometimes they look too good, even just in Blu-ray. So I was watching this morning, um, I was watching Mill of the Stone Women Yeah. Um, on the Arrow player because I, I, I was trying an Arrow player. And it looks great. They've done a great restoration on it. But in one shot, you could see they had a woman on a, you know, on a trolley pushing her along ready for her operation and you could see her tetanus jab scar on her arm 
Yes. Which, you know, which most people have, but they wouldn't have had in whenever that film is supposed to be happening. Uh, like, I don't know, when, when did they, when? I can't quite tell when that film is set, late 1800s or something. Something like that. Well, uh, people have talked about that kind of thing forever and ever about, yeah. you know, you'll you'll be able to spot someone's fillings and, and their yeah. teeth in a, in a period piece. And it's like, why do you, why? I mean, it doesn't have to break the reality for you. No, no, it's be, kind of part of the charm, really. Well, no, it's not that. It's like, you know, that's probably, you could look at that and, and, and realize, you know, that's, you could just say that those are those are teeth that are rot, that are rotting currently. Yes. I mean, those don't exactly. have to be what you what you know they are. You know exactly. There was also a wide shot because the whole film was shot at Chinachita, but they've got a couple of kind of establishing shots that no. have gone to Amsterdam to film. And there's a wide shot of Amsterdam with the canal, but in the distance you can see cars <laughs> driving down the road. And I, mm, I'm pretty sure that those aren't the right kind of cars even if this was like very early 1900s the cars didn't look like that but anyway probably you probably wouldn't have noticed that if i'd been watching it on an old ropey vhs but uh, anyway speaking of this is a nice segue here ready for this speaking of restorations (laughs) oh yes uh, this brings us a not very good segue this brings us to our film that we're going to look at today canny arabiati or rabid dogs from Mario Barber. Now I chose this um, because I, I, the films that I picked are kind of going in a sort of vaguely chronological order. But technically speaking, this film was not released um, until a good, what, like 25 years after it was actually shot. But it was made true, in yeah. the summer of 1974 or 75. Um, I believe seventy four. So yeah, yeah. So it fits in with uh, with the time period where we're at. But uh, this is a film with a very interesting history, which we'll try and get into a little bit. I don't fully understand it, even though I've been reading from two different books about it over the weekend. I still don't <laughs> quite. I haven't managed to completely like untangle it all in my head. But um, yeah, so rabid dog. So um, Rod, what is your sort of history with this film were you aware of this being a lost movie because i know you're you go back a lot like a lot more than i do when it comes to cult film knowledge my cult film knowledge has only started to develop relatively recently whereas i know you've been sort of cult film basically since you were born so i'm (laughs) sort of assuming that you were you must have been aware of this movie back when it wasn't available I was aware of it mainly because I was an avid reader of Video Watchdog in the 90s. There you go. Uh, and because of that, I, I was aware of the film. Uh, I, I was aware of the film's existence, but uh, it wasn't until it came out. Of course, I'm the same as everyone. It wasn't until it came out on that uh, initial uh, DVD offering in the late 90s mm-hmm. that I was ever able to see it. Um, and, of course, I mean, you couldn't have seen it until then. I mean, it was it was physically impossible. Yeah. But... Uh, and it was actually that uh, that Rabbit Dogs DVD. That was the very first DVD I ever bought. Uh, oh wow! Really? Yeah. yeah they, I, I, one of the things I read about it um, that they said it was like the first film to only come out on DVD, apparently, because people were still mainly using VHS in those days. Yeah, yeah. And well, so, it, it's um, what caused me to buy a DVD player. I bought I wow. bought the DVD before I had a player. There you go. And that was under the title Semaphora Rosso or, or, or Red Light. Well, or as I remember it, it was kind of... Red Light Stop? It, or 
Yeah, as I remember it, both of them, uh, both titles were, you know, on the uh, on the packaging, as it were. So you kind mm. of you kind of knew that it was a question of, as with most European films from that period, you know, you, which what what's the title? I don't know. What country are you in? Yeah, and so <laughs> it became it became a it became a, a a very exciting thing to be able to finally see this movie after it being you know completely invisible since yeah. it was since it was shot. I mean, it's amazing a lost Mario Barber film. Exactly. I mean, for you people who, because in the '90s I'd never even heard of Video Watchdog, um, so for you guys who had read that and obviously were aware of the sort of scholarship that was developing around Barber, the idea of there being a lost Barber film that's suddenly uncovered—that must have been so exciting. Well, it was, and it was strange because it was not uh, a typical Barber film by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, this mm. film is an example of Barber uh, breaking out and kind of. St- moving sideways into a genre that he had previously not been much a part of, uh, as a matter of fact, almost no part of, which yeah. is the, you know, the Italian crime explosion of the seventies. He had been, you know, primarily, if you're a Bava fan, you know, this, he'd been primarily a, uh, a maker of, of horror films to one degree to another, either suspense or crime films. You know, the, he's one of the, he's one of the, uh, fathers of the giallo genre and and uh, supernatural ghost stories of all types of course the occasional you know science fiction thing like planet of the vampires and st- strangely enough even something as odd i mean the, the closest thing to something that baba had done before to this would have been the the very cartoonish intentionally so danger diabolic which is mm. probably my favorite baba film of all time yeah. um Mainly because you know he brought the, he brought such a wonderful sensibility to it and was able to create a, a glorious adventure film on screen, and this is very much similar in that it's about you know crime and criminals, but it is incredibly different in almost every other way. Yeah, no, it's such an impressive piece of work, and as um, I think Tim Lucas points out, it's like when you look at the film. It's. It looks like the work of a much younger man than the man who made it. He was sixty-one mm-hmm. when he was shooting this, but it's got such energy and such pace, and the, like the shooting was just so cramped and so hot and sweaty that it looks like, and it's so sort of vulgar and horrific that it oh, feels like the, yeah. the kind of film that would be would, be, would have been uh, shot by somebody much younger. Um, so yeah, so Barva had just had a big trial with uh, Lisa and the Devil, which had not really taken off at all, and he'd been forced to remake it as House of Exorcism. Yeah, which had been a pretty disappointing experience. And then, um, but then he'd found this short story called "Hang On," I've got Man the, and actually, Boy. Yeah, Man and Boy. They reprinted it in the DVD. Uh, the Blu-ray booklet uh, called. Oh, I was hoping it had the Italian name. Never mind. I read that somewhere else. But um, I think it's like Luomo e la Bambini or something like that. Um, anyway, yeah, man and boy, and it's a fascinating little story. It's only like three pages long, mm-hmm. but it's really interesting to read that story and actually see whole lines of dialogue completely lifted that they put into the film. The film, despite obviously having to pad this three-page story out to an hour and a half it really sticks very well with um with the content of the of the story um so 
yeah would you like to well i don't know should we talk about the plot first let's talk about some of the people first okay let's talk about yeah let's, let's, I let's mean, barva we've we've done barva at least two or three times before now so we don't need to talk too much about barva other than to say i guess this was coming towards this was you know, sort of towards the end of his career um, and things were slowing down and obviously having a lot of sort of disappointment i think if he yeah. only made one more he only made one more uh, theatrical feature after this, I think, which was Shock, wasn't it? Correct. Yeah. And he, um, and even with Shock, he he, he did that uh, Italian director thing of officially handing it off to his son so that his son could get credit as well. Yeah, yeah. I think they said this was the last film that he solely directed. Lamberto Barber was an assistant director on this, but after this, with the projects that he did after this one. He was kind of Lamberto Barva was co-director, I think. Um, so the cost, uh, the the cast are quite interesting. So first of all, I mean, we've already mentioned, we, we've kind of we've hinted towards Joe D'Amato uh, a few minutes ago. So we've got George Eastman, aka Luigi Montefiore, uh, who may who's got such a. I mean, he looked huge. There are moments in this film where he just looks like he's towering over everyone else. Well, Such I mean, it, it helps of... that in reality he was six and a half feet tall. So. Yeah, he's really intimidating presence. Um, but obviously, in terms of cult film, he has got such an amazing career as oh, a know. writer, as an actor. He's directed as well, um, including a uh, post-apocalypse film. Um he made that really crazy film. And have you ever seen Dog Lay Afternoon? <laughs> or Bestiali- Bestialita? Do you know I that film? have not, no. Uh, he directed that. I've seen bits of it. It basically starts with um, a scene of a girl coming home from school to find her mum is having sex with a dog. And then, oh my goodness. And then the dad comes in and sees what's going on and then drags the mum out of the house and sets fire to the house killing the dog and that's just before the credits <laughs> holy crap <laughs> I know uh, yeah so he directed that so he's a pretty interesting guy obviously acted in tons of films yes. but he's perhaps best known um, in sort of cult film circles for his work with Joe D'Amato and I've read about him that often he basically would just do any film that was given to him because he had a gambling habit and so mm-hmm. was spending money faster than he could earn it, which might explain some of the films he ended up in. It, yeah, it probably does. But I mean, but but some great one. Obviously, we're grateful to him for doing those kind of films. Oh, I certainly uh, am. I mean, that's the thing. Yeah. As I was a fan of him, you know, he was someone who uh, whose face you knew uh, if you were if you were a Euro cult nut. Uh, you know, searching your way through bootlegs of whatever weird film came down the pike. Uh, he became a face that you became very happy to see whenever he would pop up in a movie. I mean, you, you, you know, we can talk all day long about Anthropophagus or, you know, Porno Holocaust or the Bronx Warriors or, or, mm-hmm. or whatever, you know, wh- whichever film you want to talk about him being in. But the... The, the fact that as soon as you see him, you know that there's at least something in the movie that you're probably going to end up enjoying. is, is, is He's yeah. one of those people. And then yeah, and there's I was... All the West, there's all the westerns as well. Oh, yeah. So many spaghetti westerns. But he became much more easy to spot. Um, 
once once you get into the seventies and the and you know after the the the, the spaghetti western had become had begun to wane quite uh, quite a bit, and so you know what I generally associate him with are those those later movies. But it was yeah. a real shock to find out that he was also a scriptwriter because I'd been a mm. fan of his for I'd say five or six years before I ever learned. Oh yeah, and by the way, he he wrote a lot of films too. And yeah. so that's when I found out, you know, he was involved in writing Kioma and uh, uh, things like uh, 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 Red Coats, which is called, also known as Cormac of the Mounties, which is a, yeah. another Joe D'Amato film, and Great and Alligator he wrote, River. He wrote, he wrote Stage Fright. Yeah. Um, and also, I'm just looking on the IMDb. Apparently, he plays the killer when he's got the mask on. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which is, you know, what you do. But he's just one of yeah. those things where... I mean, he wrote, and uh, I mean, he like wrote these bizarre little Joe 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 D'Amato things, like absurd. Mm-hmm. Which you know, I, I'm never gonna hold up and uh, pretend it's a great movie. But at the same time, he's also he's also the monster in the film, just just like he was in Anthropophagus, and and yeah. it's one of those things where I. It, it was it was years before I found out that one of the reasons why he probably moved into doing that is it was just another income stream. <laughs> he just needed yeah. more money. It was, I, I'd, I'd love uh, I'd love to know more. I mean, I've seen a lot of interviews with him, and he clearly was uh, was good at you know coming up with scenarios and and you know kind of going back and forth with directors looking for subjects that they want to make films about. And it kind of shows up because it kind of shows up in the things that he made because they always seem very collaborative. There's a there's a buy-in from the uh, the, the the people that are behind the camera on these things that that uh, it's kind of in evidence. These are not things where you know somebody presented uh, a director with a with a script and said, okay, you need to go make this. These are things that are done in collaboration and you know, not just after the fact. And that can be seen by the fact that Eastman will be you know like you say on with Stage Fright, he was sometimes playing the mass killer. And that means, hey, if we need somebody to do something to the script, we've got him. We've got him right here, so it's good. Yeah, and he um, just—I mean—you can see this with so many Italian filmmakers. Like once the sort of the bottom fell out of the the kind of lower budget film market in the yeah. late eighties, they all go on to have very long careers in television. I mean, he was mm-hmm. continuing to write TV up until just ten years ago. And uh, the same with Michele Soavi. I, we were watching Italian television a couple of weeks ago, because we've been watching. Um, my son is really into Eurovision, and we've been watching a lot of like national selection shows. So we were watching live Italian TV, and this trailer came on for a TV movie, and it was directed by Michele Soavi. I was like, oh, <laughs> there yeah. he is. I've, I just watched the uh, the new Blu-ray stage fright not that long ago. So yeah, the people like that are still working. We tend to think of them as having these horror careers and then disappearing, but no, they just moved to where the money was, which was basically in television. Yeah, and so that's where they all kind of ended up. But uh, but yeah, so um, George Eastman, as he, I think I read somewhere that he uses the name George Eastman if he's not particularly proud of the film, but he goes by Luigi Montefiore if it's a proper good film. <laughs> I don't know that that's necessary. I mean, maybe that's a good joke, but I don't know if that's necessarily true yeah. because I've seen him credited as one name or the other, depending on uh, where the print came from. So Yeah, that's also true. I know in, because um, he was in Fellini Satyricon and he used his real name in that one. So yeah. Yeah. It's kind of more of an arty film. But anyway, in this film, he's so good. 
he's absolutely terrifying like he's he's charming he's handsome he's funny at times but he's also absolutely just horrifying that you could believe any minute if you were in his company one minute you're laughing the next minute you're dead on the floor yeah he's he's, he he plays a he plays a uh an an unhinged sociopath very effectively yeah (laughs) yeah he really does speaking of which his uh one of his co-criminals um blade uh, who plays blade oh yeah because we haven't mentioned the character's name is trente due or 32 uh-huh. Which is um, which because in Italy they use the metric systems. That's thirty-two centimeters, which uh, is his nickname because that apparently is, uh, you know, how how long he is because he, he gets it out to show a woman at one point to show this is where my nickname comes from. Yes, uh-huh. yes. Which is another. It's one of those scenes where well, there are a few of them. There are two or three scenes in this movie where it becomes very evident that one of the influences on this movie, uh, and, you know, we could almost say it, you could almost say it along with me, is, of course, The Last House on the, the Last Left. House on the Left, yeah. And it, it becomes a, one of those things where you're, uh, you're, you're uncomfortably aware that the film is going to make you uncomfortable. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, the, and this is another thing that makes it stick out and be very much... Uh, very much at at odds with what is typical from uh, Mario Bava. This is not something you associate with him at all. And the uh, fact that we're staring at this movie, and it's don't get me wrong, it's completely engrossing the entire time. But there are those se- sequences where you're realizing, you know, where the film is making sure that you, as an audience member, realize just how unpleasant a couple of these characters are. Uh, the you know, and it's not just you know you don't learn how unpleasant they are just from their their ridiculous justifications for uh, the heinous acts that they per- perpetrate, but you actually watch them humiliate and uh, harass someone on screen who is completely at their mercy. It's it, it is uh, it's 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 uncomfortable. It it is cringe inducing. Yeah. So his um, friend Blade, who's good with a with a, like a flick knife, um, is played by Don Backey, mm-hmm. who's actually his real name is Aldo Capone. He's a singer. But he, I was looking back at his other films that he'd done, and he did some of those Decamerotici films as well, just like probably everybody did in those days. <laughs> he was in Una Cavalla Tuta Nuda, or The All-Naked Horse, and La Calda Nozzi del Decameron, which is The Hot Nights of De- Decameron, <laughs> and um, a bunch of other ones. Well, he apparently had a small role in uh, uh, Satyricon as well. So He did, but not the same Satyricon, because there were two Satyricons yeah, this, at the same the 69 time. Satyricon, yeah, the 69 Satyricon. Fellini Satyricon, because Fellini wanted to do Satyricon 
but then he found out that this other guy um, Gianluigi Polidoro was already making Satyricon so that's why he called his Fellini Satyricon hmm. because he, he couldn't get the rights to just call his film Satyricon so yeah he's um, he played Uncolpio in, in that version of Satyricon um, but yeah he's uh, so he, I think he, I read that he became more of an actor and less of a singer but he's sort of kept his hand in with um, with music um, there's only one song that gets sung in this film and he doesn't sing it which is which seems like a missed opportunity yeah it kind of does he's really quite terrifying as well he's playing unhinged yes um, and somebody who is completely just on the edge very very well uh, yeah he's really quite frightening so I mean I have to admit I've never seen Last House on the Left wow really so I'm looking to you for points of comparison with that film okay well yeah. um Wow, uh, I was about to suggest I was about to suggest that you see it, uh, but I'm not going. I'm actually. Last House on the Left is one of those movies where I've watched it probably three or four times, maybe four or five in my lifetime, and honestly, that's that's more than enough. It's an unpleasant yeah. film, and it is. Uh, it also has at least one element in it that uh, shouldn't be in the film because it, it doesn't fit at all. But the uh, the the things that are taken from it in, and, and incorporated into this film really are the scenes of uh, humiliation uh, with yeah. the uh, the female characters. As a matter of fact, there is a specific scene in which a character is made to pee her pants uh, mm-hmm. that is referenced quite heavily by a yes. specific scene in this movie. And um, I was going to say that our uh, old Blade here, he does look like David Hess. There's, there's a kind of similar... This is true. ...similarity with the curly hair. And, yeah. No, and he's it, properly scary. Yeah, and the, the, there's, a, there's an interesting trade back and forth between who's taking the lead on being the uh, the most bit of a scumbag is it 32 <laughs> or is it or is it blade from and from scene to scene it, it's kind of a toss up as to who's really yeah. being the uh, David Hess character to a degree yeah. but uh yeah. when the when the switch is made in the in the the narrative of the film and we start to see that blade besides being clearly you know less stable i would say uh, he's also someone who, once he's past a certain point, he starts to his 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 fear factor kind of kicks in, and he starts to feel too nervous to really be comfortable doing certain things. It's really yeah. uh, it's really interesting. But like that just makes him more scary because he's still yeah. got this knife, and he's stuck it into people far too easily. Uh-huh. Um, and there's a whole thing where he starts talking about how he tried to skin somebody once just to see how easy it was and yeah, yeah. it's just really quite horrifying so should we um, should we talk a little bit about the plot and then we could just talk about what we know about all the different versions of the film yeah sure let's do um, it so it's quite a simple plot it's very streamlined it's basically one location for most of the film $70,000 in cash is being transferred to the pharmaceutical bank to pay the weekly wages of its staff. A group of thieves known as the Ajaccio Street Gang, which consists of Dottore, or Doc, Bisturi, or Blade, Trentadue, 32, and Faggio, uh, they attack the security guards and then get away with the payroll. And they kill people quite 
uh, like this, the film's just starting, and already there are people being stabbed to death. Yeah, shot. there's there's a person it's killed a... during the during the theft. Yeah, um, I mean, they, yeah, because they shoot a guard, they stab a guy to death to get the money off him. Mm-hmm. It's very brutal, very quickly, and um, and then they get away, or they try to get away in their car that's waiting, but the one of the police, or is it a security guard, shoots and manages to kill the driver and pierce the uh, petrol tank. So the car quickly runs out of fuel just when they get back into town. They're, just, they're in Rome somewhere. And so they run into a uh, parking garage, as it says here. I so yeah, it's say, one of those underground uh, underground parking yeah. garages. We, yeah. we, we call them multi-stories over here. Mm-hmm. So they're in the multi-story. Uh, looking for another vehicle when they get cornered by police so they end up taking two women as hostages and this bit's horrifying as well because it almost seems like it's by accident i think it um, was i think it really was and he just and then blade blade leans into it he 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 stabs one of the women in the throat killing her and then he doesn't even blink an eye he just leans into it and they use the fact that they've killed one of them as a threat to the police to back away but he looks quite shocked with himself, like he didn't quite mean to do it. Yeah. But then later on in the film, when he just seems like he's a complete psycho, then you just think, oh, well, maybe we can't really trust him either way. Like, maybe it wasn't so much of an accident as we first thought. So they manage to um, they take the other woman and get to the car, and they uh, drive out of the multi-story, but then they... Then they end up at some traffic lights by a hospital where there is a guy with a child who looks very ill in his car and they jump into this car with this guy and he's like, oh, I've got to take my son to the hospital but they are not having any of it and they order him at gunpoint to drive and they're going to tell him where to go. And then that's basically it. We're now in the car yep. with three criminals. Uh, we haven't really talked much about the uh, the doc or dottore He's the sort of sensible one. He seems like the brains of the operation. Easily, yeah. Um, and he's kind of scary, but in different ways. But he seems to at least sort of have his head, you know, properly where it needs to be. Yeah, he's but, uh, he's scary but sensible. He's not a yeah. psycho. He's someone who, well, you know, he's a... My, my favorite uh, way of thinking about this is uh, there are psychos... Uh, but and you know who are criminals, and there are criminals who are psychos. But what you have here is someone like Harvey Keitel's character in Reservoir Dogs. He's he's not a crazy person, but no. if you're in his way, he won't hesitate. No. And then there are people like Michael Madsen's character who take pleasure in actually killing someone, yeah, and thanks. those are unfortunately apparently the other two people he's linked up with to do this robbery. Now, it's interesting that you mentioned that because I did read somewhere in here how one of the reasons that Lamberto Bava, when he did his edit of this film, he changed the name to Kidnapped because he thought Rabid Dogs sounded too much like Reservoir Dogs. Well, I mean, you know, I can see that, yeah. The the film is like, a, it could be a Tarantino film before Tarantino <laughs> was making films. So yeah, it has, that, it has that lean, mean aspect to it and also yeah. how, you know, not, not that this was uncommon at the time but it's a it's a crime film in which everything you le- you learn uh almost more from the dialogue than you do from the actions of the characters but the actions are so big 
that yeah. it's the actions that you end up remembering and everything else just kind of fosters a, a kind of undergirds those those actions and so they build on one another effectively and it just all it's 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 incredibly effectively done so because mm. it's all done in real time so yeah. basically from the robbery to the end of the movie is an hour and a half and so what that means is that we just get again like tarantino became sort of celebrated for was people just talking about stuff that's not necessarily part of the plot they're just talking to each other about things yeah and everyone's like oh this is a breakthrough even though you know the french new wave films were doing that back in the 60s as well but here we've got a similar thing because we're just with these characters in real time they're not just talking about the robbery or where they're going next or you know then their dialogue isn't always driving the plot they're just talking or they're teasing each other or like they call this this poor woman maria they um say how she looks like greta garbo and then they're sort of making jokes about greta garbo and i want to be alone and all that stuff yeah and they you know and they're quite funny like in another circumstance these guys could be quite fun to hang out with um so they're they're, they're quite complex characters they're not just straightforward like in a lot of Poliziotesky films you've got bad guys who are just bad guys yeah there's yeah these these characters are horrible but they're not ravening they're not ravening monsters it's they've they've got more to them and especially like later on in the film when sort of things start to deteriorate and we start to see other sides of their character coming out and um yeah they're really interesting now i don't know i don't know how much we really want to talk specifically about the plot i mean basically they're driving now to an unknown destination they're driving on the motorway um up from rome towards florence mm-hmm. and i was quite pleased when i realized this because i've driven that road <laughs> <laughs> uh when we did our big epic european road trip about eight years ago we drove from florence to rome and it's only about i think it's only about a four hour drive it's not that far really um and there are lots of uh, toll booths that you stop at. That's the thing with driving in Italy. You don't realise that it's going to cost you loads of ex- loads more than you planned for because of all the tolls. Uh, I had a credit card and I just was like chucking all the tolls on the credit card. And it was quite frightening when I got the bill after the holiday. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so, so toll booths are a real thing. And we drove through a lot of those on our trip. But yeah, that's... Um, so I think I don't think they get all the way. They're also just heading, they're heading north because they've got an escape plan. They've got a, they've got something ready to was what what they're heading for. But that's basically it. And then just lots of things happen to them along the way. Things go wrong. There's some really horrible stuff. Yeah, Maria I mean, tries. at a at a certain point, poor Maria, who you know, yeah, they often refer to just as Greta Garbo, as you say. She she asks if she asks if she can relieve herself if they'll just stop so that she can pee beside the road and uh she attempts to escape and blade and 32 chase her down uh to a to a farmhouse that she had spotted that she you know obviously yeah. hoped that there would be some help there no one's there they no, recapture they beat her. her up yeah, yeah yeah they kind of slap her around and force her to urinate in front of them uh the the whole sequence where they force her to take her underwear off is really uncomfortable making yeah and uh the uh Right, you know, soon after that, uh, they they are they're all in agreement that it's probably a good idea to stop someplace along the way and buy sandwiches. I really like the fact that the some of the details that are put into the film about this drive 
are things that uh, would would be much more obvious to an Italian or as as possibly a tourist who's driven these roads before, because the 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 moment when they realize it's like okay the they go through the toll booth and realize that one of the one of the smarter ways that they can uh, avoid uh, detection or avoid uh, being you know because they're listening to uh, news reports on the radio yeah. as they go. One of the ways that they can kind of shake off the possibility of being spotted is by just turning around and going back through the toll, the, the toll booth the other way, back toward the city. Yeah. Uh, and the fact that that is an idea that Doc is very, you know, very happy with, and as a matter of fact, I think he may be the one that tosses it out, tells you that, you know, they are uh, their, their plans are to go to a sp- specific spot. But he's very canny in not laying that out. So yeah. that the driver, who, you know, is, of course, doing all of this under duress is uh is by the time you get to the end of the film he has he has doped out that you know we keep going in a specific direction and 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 I think you know obviously we're going someplace in specific and of course by the end of the film you realize that yeah 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 we're going someplace where we have another car stashed yeah. doc was smart enough to know that they would need to change vehicles and he had something set up and this unfortunate hole in the petrol tank kidnap uh kidnap a woman and a guy and this kid is just something that he's having to like throw into the mix to keep things keep things afloat and away from the cops long enough to get to the getaway car mm-hmm. uh it, it's wonderful because like you say it's it is a very simple streamlined story but there's so much wonderful detail and it is well told and and in often just so so suspenseful the the yeah. sequence where um uh where Thirty-two. They've stopped and gotten sandwiches, and one of the things that thirty-two decided he was he was going to do is he bought a, a bottle of scotch and is just slurping it down like a crazy well, person. You can't you can't have an Italian film without a bottle of J and B. So he's in the he's, contract. He's, he's he's slurping this stuff down, and he's starting to get a little drunk, and he starts to uh, he starts to harass uh, Maria some more, who's of course you know sitting between him and Blade there in yeah, the back seat. She's traumatized. Yeah, and it's and once again, it's very uncomfortable. But there's they're they're starting to draw the attention of other drivers, and Doc is yeah. trying trying desperately to get them to calm down and and not act like this because they're in a car. Everybody yeah, that goes they're... by them or is anywhere near them can see if they're acting like morons. Yeah. Uh, and and so uh, that's when we get to it becomes a question now of like I, I know that we probably don't want to spoil the ending because as 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 available as this film has been over the past I don't know it's been sporadically available over the past twenty years and fairly available over the past I'd say ten yeah. uh, there are surprises in the final act that I think we probably are better off not spoiling yeah no I don't want to give anything away really okay yeah. Um... But I do love, as I was about to say, I think it's great that the events that happen, the violent acts, let's put it that way, are are built brick by brick, piece by piece, step by step as the movie goes along. And it's and and there are, you know, it's just people not able to control their their kind of inner demons and not not being aware that the way they're acting out is going to put them in real danger. Even if you're a very dangerous person yourself, that doesn't really matter. Yeah, and there's some great just extra sort of moments, like when, like you say, when they stop at the service station and they're getting the food, and then um, the driver, Ricardo, um, 
is it Ricardo? That's the actor, isn't it? The oh no, that, I think that's the company. No, it is his name as well, Ricardo. Yeah. Um, bumps into a friend, and he's got to explain why, like, he's not at work today, and you know, who's this massively tall, handsome man that suddenly he's with, who is claiming is his friend, but she's never seen before. And like, and you can think, oh no, this is gonna, she's gonna mess things up here, but they they get away with it. But then later on, they bump into somebody whose car has broken down and she basically begs them to give her a lift to town so they end and she they, she won't take no she can't read the signs like she can she cannot read the signals and uh-huh. she just gets into the car with all these people for a lift to the next town um and just little things like that like stuff that isn't part of the plot but really just helps to build the tension because you're thinking oh no how's this gonna you know just when you think things can't get worse something else goes wrong or somebody else interferes and all the while you've got this poor Maria who's just sort of traumatised by what's going on and these other guys who are all on edge and there's the tension all the way through is really very intense well the we, this time through the movie I have to say I've always been impressed by the performance and the performances in this movie and uh, but this time around, I, I have to say I paid special attention to uh, Ricardo. Uh, is it Cuccioloa? Cuccio, yeah, something like that. Uh, the Italian actor who plays the driver of the car. You know, the car with the, you know he's the one with the child who he's trying to get to a hospital. And he, uh, I I was not aware until recently of his incredible career as a dubber. He provided. Mm. He was doing the Italian voiceovers for uh, a lot of actors. Uh, at, at this time, while also acting in a lot of films as himself as well, yeah. and uh, he's really, really good in this movie. Uh, the the moments as as things go along and things get as things become more and more tense, the moments when he, uh, you know, raises his voice and starts yeah. insisting on certain things, as you can see that he he knows it's a dangerous thing to do, but he just, he can't, he can't keep his mouth shut and he can't control his emotions at certain points. He's, he's very effective in this. It's not, not yeah. that, the, not, not that everybody isn't, but he's, I, I, like I say, I focused on him simply because having learned about his, uh, his abilities as an actor, uh, providing voice. I mean, I don't know. I, I, I don't know if he provided his own voice for this film he did. Um, He's the only actor. We will talk a bit more about that later when the when we okay. get to the production issues. But yeah, he is the only person doing his own voice. But I, regardless, he's so good in this. He's yeah. he's he's uh, he's he's he's. I wouldn't say a standout because the performance levels are very high from everybody. But uh, once you start focusing on him, and let's just say that this you know your second time through this movie, you probably will focus on him more. Yeah. But the, uh, <laughs> the the uh, the the joys of watching wink, him, wink. yeah, yeah, wink, wink. Uh, the joys of watching his facial expressions as other things are going down, where he's not the scenes where he doesn't even have dialogue, where he's just having to react to what other people yeah. are saying as he drives. It's it's he's really really good. Yeah, I like the the sort of shifts in balances of power throughout the film, and yes. sort of relationships between the characters change. And I like the way that he's almost starting to sort of team up with the with the doc, and they're, they're kind of looking at each other and giving each other looks, uh-huh. like they both know what's got to happen next. And you know, it's almost like they are now a, a team against these two lunatics in the back seat. Because so because they kind of have changes. to be at certain points. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's very interesting. Yeah, um, 
apparently the film was being shot in English so everyone was speaking their lines in English but Ricardo um, Cucciola didn't speak English so he was having to read his lines phonetically taped on bits of paper to the windscreen or wherever he was looking wow apparently uh, <laughs> that makes his performance many... even more impressive yeah but things when I, I didn't realize that i mean i've watched this film a couple of times but both times i've watched it in italian uh-huh. so i haven't even tried watching it with the english track but apparently that's that was the preferred uh that was the idea that this was going to be in english to begin with anyway um which i suppose we, we might as well just talk about what happened to the film yeah yeah and, let's not spoil uh, any more of the of the, of yeah. the developments within the, the the story and let's uh, let's talk about how it took 23 years for anybody to yeah. see this thing so this was a lost movie because the producer for various reasons that are too long and boring to go into but basically the producer ran out of money and lamberto barva said this was a very difficult shoot because the producer wasn't coming up with the salaries for the crew they were supposed to pay them weekly and like it was getting delayed and then checks were bouncing so all the way through things were a bit dicey in terms of money anyway and then at the end when they that actually finished the main shoot the producer basically went broke went bankrupt i think yeah and the all the film assets were just seized including the temp tracks that stelvio cipriani had recorded sort of demo tracks for the score and a rough cut that had been done but they hadn't finished shooting there was still second unit stuff to do they wanted to have they wanted to show that the car was being chased because in this in the final version of the film that we get there's no sense that the police are after them they they're getting away but in the original script the idea was that occasionally we'd see police helicopters and police cars like that there is an element of a chase going on so they still had these extra bits to film but it was all seized and another problem they had there was that none of the dialogue had been recorded live because this was still standard practice uh-huh. in Italy to shoot silent and then build the soundtrack in post so they hadn't recorded anything and so all of a sudden all the film is seized nobody could get to it and they tried and tried and tried and tried and tried um, and it just never happened and it just it became this lost film that Barber was clearly very disappointed, and it was gone. Until do you know the story? I mean, you must know a bit of it if you bought oh, yeah. that DVD. Do you want it to pick up twenty five years later? The actress who plays Maria or Greta Carbo, depending on who's yeah. who's insulting her at that point in time in the yeah, film. Yeah, Leah Lander. Leah Lander. Uh, she uh, led a group of uh, uh, of Germans who uh, put together some funding. Uh, and worked together with uh, Lamberto Bava to raise enough money to get the the film elements out of Hawk. And uh, so the story is that that I read that she had the rights to the film because uh-huh. she she had her, spent some time in court trying to trying to wrangle this. But also her boyfriend, when she made this movie, one of the reasons she was cast uh-huh. was because her wealthy boy, older boyfriend, was one of the investors. Correct. So and she had she had a foot so in this. She somehow from the inherited from him the rights or something. Uh-huh. So she she somehow got the rights to the movie, which was why she was then able to sort of pursue it and get it together or something. <laughs> so and that that took until. I took until the the mid to late nineties. Yeah, and uh, so she uh, 
she 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 and Lamberto Bava and a few other people put together uh, a version of the film. And of course, for 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 Lamberto Bava, this was this was something that he was well aware of. I mean, he was he, by that time he was almost a co-director working beside his father and had been for a few years. And so at this point. He's. This is another little thing in his. I mean, his father's long dead by this point, but it it could be another of those wonderful touchstones showing how talented his father was as a director. Plus, this is something that's just sitting there with no attention whatsoever. And so, the idea was that to they they raised enough money to do a little extra shooting, uh, and they, what they did essentially is they kind of sh- they they shot a uh, like I think a single scene to add to the end of the movie. Which I don't think is necessary. Um, and didn't they shoot a new credit sequence because there there was yeah. no opening credit sequence? Exactly, and uh, they they were able to put that together and and uh, lock 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 down you know the 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 soundtrack and everything like that, and then they were able to release it. Now and the soundtrack, you know, you mentioned that. So this is the thing that I've been trying. Nobody's mentioned any details in all the things that I've read about this movie. Because obviously, so they managed to get Ricardo Cucciola back to dub his lines, right? But he's the only person. So all the other dialogue in the film. So that means. So the version I watched, I've got the Arrow Blu-ray. Uh-huh. All of I'm trying to work out where all that sound has come from. So was that the soundtrack that was was that made in the '90s by Leah Lander? That's the bit I can't work out. I don't know who's doing all the voices. And there's well, no now, details I, anywhere who did all the dubbing. Yeah, I don't know who all the other voices are. Yeah. Uh, I, I really don't. But whatever, whoever is involved, like I say, I, I only ever watch the Italian version with subtitles mm-hmm. uh, because that seems to be the first version that was put together once they, you know, once they put the movie together in the late '90s. And it seems to me to be the one that. I mean, yeah, I know they they were speaking English. But and honestly, sometimes you can easily tell that because that the, you can watch their mouths and it's perfectly matching the subtitles. Yeah, uh, and the uh, uh, which you know is is interesting, but also it's one of those strange. Just as an aside, it's one of those strange things where wait, the movie was made and takes place in Italy, and yet it's very obvious that everybody's speaking English. And yet I'm watching it in Italian. It's I, I, it's it's like a it's like a snake swallowing its own tail. I don't know what to do first. But the uh, joys of it are that that is the only way I've ever watched it. I've not watched an English dub of it. But the people who were involved, like I say, I'm not sure if any of these tracks were laid down back in the day or if they were all done in the 90s. I think they must have all been done in the 90s because of the way yeah. that the thing went into receivership and they no you know nobody was able to to get their hands on any of this, uh, any of the footage or anything. It's incredibly well done from my perspective. I don't speak Italian, so maybe I'm, you know, maybe I'm the wrong person to ask, but I do really like the Italian, uh, dub track because it really, I mean, emotionally it works and, uh, it it, it sounds authentic to me. Everything sounds very authentic. And that's saying something, considering that, uh, some of the dubbing I've seen on some, uh, some movies as of late, uh, seem rather haphazard and half-assed, and yeah. this does not. So, but it's weird. So the, I, I was trying to work out how many different versions there have been of this film. Oh, at least that, four. Yeah, I think there, there have been four. Initial, there was an initial one where Leolander had worked with this German guy called Peter Blumenstock, 
and they got a version of the film together and he shot some extra footage uh on 16 millimeter yeah and they i think that's the he then put it out on dvd with his company then lamberto barber got involved and put in a load of stock footage of helicopters and police and stuff which i think was a mistake yeah and he got a new score because the 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 one that um that original dvd version was which under the traffic light red traffic light title they used those temp tracks from Stavio Cipriani, but then Lamberto Bava got Stavio Cipriani involved, who did a completely new score. Yeah. And they re-edited the film, and he chopped bits up a little bit and called it Kidnapped. Um, I thought, actually, maybe what I'll do here, I'll put in a bit of both scores so we can have a comparison. So okay. here is the uh, Kidnapped score. then here's some music from the original which sounds much more like classic Cipriani Poliziotesky So that was different as well with Kidnapped. But then, so this version that I've got on Blu-ray, which is called Rabid Dogs, is some kind of edit that is the closest to his own um, his own version. Like the own, they've used Barber's notes, but I'm not entirely sure who's compiled this version. So the Rabid Dogs that's on Blu-ray now, that's got another different, that's got a completely different opening credits that looks exactly like a 70s movie credits uh-huh. it's not the same credits that was in the kidnap version it's not the same credits that was in the original Blumenstock DVD version so I don't know exactly who made this final version but it's supposed to be the closest to what Barber intended apparently and it, I mean it's great you wouldn't know if you just showed this film to somebody I don't think they would have any idea that this is a film that wasn't finished and had been edited like 25, 30 years later. It just looks exactly like a movie from the 70s. It in, feels, in feels, yeah, it feels period, it feels period accurate, which is a strange yeah. thing to say about a movie that was, you know, shot shot as a contemporaneous film. I mean, yeah. it's, it's not pretending to be some other time period. It's and, and to be completed, you know, more than two decades later, it, it 
it's it's amazing how effective it is. I I love the the Cipriani music. I think it yeah. Uh, I think it's I think it's an astonishing uh, uh, bit 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 of music, and I think that maybe because that's how I first experienced the movie, I just think that it's the best way to go as far as the score is mm-hmm. concerned. But eh. yeah, and it's it's Cipriani doing his old harpsichord again. He loved that harpsichord. Didn't he? Yeah, yeah. And he's 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 so good. He's so like good at finding film. Oh, there's that harpsichord again. But he's so good at incorporating it into everything. I mean, in yeah. this, in this, he's using a harpsichord, uh, as he often did, to just you know get your blood pumping, to make you yeah. feel like there's just something racing along here that you've got to hang on to, or you're gonna you know you're gonna it's be left very, behind. It's very similar to the music for Tentacles, I think, which I think. Is it Tentacles that also has a Cipriani harpsichord score? Oh God, score? I haven't. I I really can't remember the score from that movie. Possibly um, Concord Affair. I think that's also. <laughs> Whenever I think Cipriani, I just think Harpsichord. <laughs> But anyway, but no, it's good. The music, the the original score that he did, I think he did, I think Tim Lucas says that there are basically four or five different recordings that he supplied, which were all just versions of that same theme, but done in different arrangements. So I guess if he had have done the proper score, there would have been more. Probably, just When he got the chance, instead of taking that, those original tracks and just developing those he did something completely different but that was kind of 25 odd years later i suppose but but anyway so it's a it's a complicated history for this film but to actually just watch it you wouldn't know any of that stuff it's just really exciting quite grim very realistic sweaty tense um claustrophobic crime film basically i think it's great I think that Rabbit Dogs is absolutely one of the one of the five best movies that that Bava ever made. And considering how how in high regard I hold his entire run of films, that's saying a lot. It's it's yeah. an, it's very different from everything he ever did. It is perfectly aligned with the crime films that were being made in Italy at the time. It is phenomenal if it had been, if it had been released you know in like oh. 74 or 75 i have absolutely no doubt whether it was financially successful or not it would have found an audience that lauded yeah. it for decades after the and fact he, he would probably have ended up making three or four other poliziotesky type films if oh, this one had come easily out. easily because this this changes the way uh people in the industry would have thought of him because yeah. this is so different from what he is normally thought of as being able to accomplish on screen 
and it's just so unlucky. Yeah, and it's so unlucky for him because you know you got look at Sergio Martino or Umberto Lenzi. They're making Poliziotesky films at the rate of about one a week, and (laughs) the one time, the one time that Barber tries to do it, he ends up with somebody who goes bankrupt and the whole thing falls apart. And it and and the shame of it is is that he has a drum tight, amazing script. I mean. You're not going to find a better, more taut, more suspenseful, and better directed film than this. That yeah. this, it's he he had the best elements and he put them together brilliantly, and it didn't matter. Yeah, no, it's such a shame. If he'd have managed to get it produced by somebody else who was making these all the time, yeah, it would have been a big hit, I'm sure. But there yeah. we go. So speaking of Barber, I wanted to mention, I've already tweeted this out, that uh, there's a new book out about Mario Barber by Leon Hunt. And he, um, I know Leon Hunt a little bit. He was my, he was he was the first PhD supervisor that I had for about Ooh. two years. He was a big influence on me in steering my um, research ideas into something that was actually going to work. And particularly, he turned me towards Italian film because I had never really been that interested I know that sounds like sacrilege now from where I'm sitting here (laughs) well you don't know you don't know what you're going to like until you take a taste well exactly he's the person who really pushed me towards Italian cinema and I've very always been very grateful to him since um so yeah so he's just written a book on Mario Bava called The Artisan as Auteur and it's a more of an academic uh, kind of analysis and exploration of Barber's career from a number of different angles. So it's not just a filmography and going through each film. He's sort of approaching Barber's films from a variety of different sort of academic angles. So if that sounds like your kind of thing, then that's definitely worth checking out. Unfortunately, because it's published by an academic press, the hardback is out in hardback and it's very expensive <laughs> for... For what is just a normal size book um but it is available as an ebook and eventually hopefully it'll come out as a paperback but uh yeah definitely worth checking out uh, yeah thank goodness can't. for the ebook versions of a lot yeah. of these kind of books man if you can't get enough about barber then it's nice to have a new book that's looking at it from a different uh different point of view so i haven't oh, di- started... different perspectives on bava are always yeah. always welcome yes exactly yeah so i haven't started reading it yet but i'm looking forward to getting stuck in at some point but i think that that point we should probably wrap it up uh thank you very much again rod uh it's always fun to talk with somebody who knows a lot more about this stuff than i do <laughs> I, d- I don't know that i necessarily know more it's just that i've lived with it for longer yeah exactly i mean i my life would be so different if i'd have if somebody had introduced me to video watchdog i'm like oh, oh I, I guess people, so yeah i meet people who who are british but were aware of video watchdog and i'm like how back in the 90s how did you find <laughs> there was no internet how did you find out about stuff like that like unless you I, yeah i had a fan i had a friend <laughs> who was a fan of the magazine he had um uh, he was he was he was a dear sweet friend of mine who has unfortunately he passed on uh, several years back, but he was one of those people who in a lot of in a lot of respects was an autodidact. He uh, was curious about just about everything in the world, and therefore his house was just you know stacked with all kinds of interesting things and you know magazines, books. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
back then, of course, VHS tapes, just what, yeah. whatever, because he was just voracious trying to suck up all this stuff that he could. And I stumbled across, I think it was Video Watchdog issue yeah. nine in, in his yeah. house. And uh, he had a, I think he had like one other issue of it. From then on, I was just hooked. I was going to seek that magazine out forever. I can, I can just imagine you holding that copy up in his house, and as a beam of light hits you through the window, <laughs> and the kind of holy grail. Oh. Well, at the, at the time, uh, that was only one of many magazines of that type that that kind of you could kind of picture picture in that way with me. Uh, Psychotronic magazine was another. Yeah. Uh, you know. The, I don't know how in the UK anybody ever found out about stuff like that, unless you lived in London and went to like specialist film shops, which only seem to ever exist in London. Yeah. I don't know how anybody ever knew that something like that even existed, because that would have totally changed everything for me if I'd have found that at a younger age. Pre, pre-internet, it was uh, too pre- late. Pre-internet, you essentially kind of had to be in uh, either a, a college town that would yeah. have some kind of, you know, s- small kind of squirrely uh, bookstores or video stores or someplace like that, yeah. <laughs> or in a city that had something, and this is pure and simply true, uh, at the time, if you were in a city that had a Tower Records, because their magazine, their magazine section was insane. And but, that's yeah, where but... I stumbled across so many cult movie magazines. That's where I found videos for the first time. And it's just, you know, if you want to talk about another magazine that just kind of, you know, took off and ran away, that that was mm-hmm. one of them because the the in-depth coverage, the, the the tone taken within that magazine. I mean, that's one of the reasons why I was so happy to, over on the Nashicast, to talk to Bob Sargent, the guy who uh, created videos. It's it's one of those touchstone magazines for your occult fanatics. And, yeah, it only lasted, you know, it lasted, few, you know, less than 10 episodes. I mean, 10 episodes. It lasted less than 10 issues. But... Not everything's a podcast, Rod. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. I was just like I'm trying to trying to get these voices out there still decades later, where these people who yeah. made you know made magazines at the time, and those were the ways in which you learned about this stuff. And if you, you know, if you were happy enough and lucky enough to stumble into a Tower Records, you were going to find crazy magazines like this if you were interested. Mm-hmm. And that's you know, it's a very that. different world now. Yeah. Well, it, it, was, it was a very different world here as well we just that kind of stuff just didn't happen here in in the uk um unless maybe it was maybe everyone else found it and it was just me but (laughs) maybe you were sure you were oddly sheltered yeah well i mean yeah that's probably true anyway (laughs) i think on that note uh, we'll leave it there thank you again rod and uh thank you everybody for listening do get in touch with us uh let us know your favorite Polizioteschi films or films you think we should cover coming up. There is actually in about two weeks I think Arrow are putting out a Blu-ray box set of um, Castellari Polizioteschi films. I know the Heroin Busters is one of those. Yeah, there are only two films in the in the set, but yeah, they're both they're both good. Quite exciting. Um, So maybe we'll fit that one in at some point. But yeah, so it's good though that you know attention has been turned once again to these uh, these great movies. So. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Please do uh, tell your friends, you know, share the podcast on social media. Give us a rating and a review wherever you listen. Yes, please. Uh, All that stuff. You know, everyone tells you to do that. So mind you, I never do. When I listen to podcasts, they always say, please leave us a review. I don't think I've ever done that except maybe yours. 
So <laughs> you definitely have done it with mine. So yes, yeah. I was I, I was about to call you out for lying. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I think yours is the only podcast I've ever bothered. Um, but hey, so don't be like me, guys. Uh, be better than me. Uh, okay, thanks everybody. Uh, we'll be back soon. Bye. Bye everyone. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. Use the stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.